Footsteps behind you as you enter the woods. Night draws back its cape. Light illumines your path. Open your eyes. Listen. Welcome to Dark Softly Tales. Dark stories for dark hearts. I'm Mav Sky. Good evening and welcome to your nightmares, where we like to keep it dark and dreamy here at Dark Softly Tales. This is your host, Mav. Tonight, we will be continuing with part four of Algernon Blackwood's The Wendigo. What I find most, oh, what's the word, entrancing, enticing about this story is the way Blackwood describes nature as fierce, piercing, unscathingly beautiful. There is this emotion that he evokes that I have felt so many times when up in the mountains, especially as a teenager, when I used to hike the foothills of Mount Rainier, there's this feeling of complete awe and wonder of that vastness around you. Your senses are completely submerged in it. And yet, it's so impersonal, lonely. It doesn't care if you're there. You're just this breath of warm air on a wintry day that disappears just as fast as it appeared. And that breath dissolves and becomes a part of the elements. And yet you being alive long enough to be a witness, just one time even, of that vast and wild beauty, is enough. This is what Blackwood describes so well in his stories in general, but especially in The Wendigo. So when he introduces the supernatural presence of The Wendigo, it's kind of a startling that breaks the spell of beauty. It breaks up the natural laws and patterns of nature, and there's this feeling of dis-ease and unrest. Creating this dis-ease and unrest of emotion and showing this difference is pivotal in a horror story or a horror movie. The natural pattern has to be broken up, like throwing a rock in a mirror, and reality as you know it shatters. What do you do with that? Can reality ever be restored again? Can life ever go back to the way we knew it before reality was shattered? The answer is no. And yet, deep in our hearts, we all know that. But there's a part of ourselves, sometimes, that holds on to the old way of life, clutching to it. And the longer we hold on to it, refusing to let it go, the deeper the suffering. The deeper the suffering, the deeper the horror. Speaking of horror, I think it's time for a story. Don't you? Now, I want you to sit back and relax. Clear your mind. Take a deep breath. We will be in the forest tonight, and there are monsters in the forest. But don't worry, I got your hand. 
There's nothing to be afraid of. Is there? Take my hand and hang on tight as we journey into the dark softly. The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. Narrated by Mav Sky. Part 4. Simpson followed the trail that lay a short distance across the patches of snow, and then lost it again where the trees grew too thickly for snow to lie. He shouted till he was hoarse, until the sound of his own voice and all that unanswering and listening world began to frighten him. His confusion increased in direct ratio to the violence of his efforts. His distress became formidably acute, till at length his exertions defeated their own object, and from sheer exhaustion he headed back to the camp again. It remains a wonder that he ever found his way. It was with great difficulty, and only after numberless false clues, that he had at last saw the white tent between the trees, and so reached safety. Exhaustion then applied its own remedy, and Simpson grew calmer. He made the fire and breakfasted. Hot coffee and bacon put a little sense and judgment into him again. And he realized that he had been behaving like a boy. He now made another and more successful attempt to face the situation collectively, and a nature naturally plucky coming to his assistance he decided that he must first make as thorough a search as possible. Failing success in which he must find his way into the home camp as best as he could and bring help. And this is what he did. Taking food, matches and rifle with him and a small ax to blaze the trees against his return journey, he set forth. It was eight o'clock when he started the sun shining over the tops of the trees and a sky without clouds. Pinned to a stake by the fire, he left a note in case DeFago returned while he was away. This time, according to a careful plan, he took a new direction, intending to make a wide sweep that must sooner or later cut into indications of the guide's trail. And before he had gone a quarter of a mile, he came across the tracks of a large animal in the snow, and beside it, the light and smaller tracks of what were beyond question human feet, the feet of Defago. The relief he at once experienced was natural, though brief, for at first sight he saw in these tracks a simple explanation of the whole matter. These big marks had surely been left by a bull moose that, wind against it, had blundered upon the camp and uttered its singular cry of warning and alarm the moment its mistake was apparent. Defago, in whom the hunting instinct was developed to the point of uncanny perfection, had scented the brute coming down the wind hours before, 
His excitement and disappearance were due, of course, to his... But then the impossible explanation at which he had grasped faded, as common sense showed him mercilessly that none of this was true. No guide, much less a guide like DeFago, could have acted in so irrational a way, going off without his rifle. The whole affair demanded a far more complicated elucidation. When he remembered the details of it all, the cry of terror, the amazing language, the gray face of horror when its nostrils first caught the new odor, that muffled sobbing in the darkness. And for this too, now came back to him dimly. The man's original aversion for this particular bit of country. Besides, now that he examined them closer, these were not the tracks of a bull moose at all. Hank had explained to him the outline of a bull's hoofs, or cows or calves too, for that matter. He had drawn them clearly on a strip of birch bark, and these were wholly different. They were big, round, ample, and with no pointed outline as of sharp hooves. He wondered for a moment whether bear tracks were like that. There was no other animal he could think of, for caribou did not come so far south at this season, and even if they did, they would leave hoof marks. They were ominous signs, these mysterious writings left in the snow by the unknown creature that had lured a human being away from safety. And when he coupled them in his imagination with that haunting sound that broke the stillness of the dawn, a momentary dizziness shook his mind, distressing him again beyond belief. He felt the threatening aspect of it all, and stooping down to examine the marks more closely, he caught a faint whiff of that sweet yet pungent odor that made him instantly straighten up again fighting a sensation almost of nausea. Then his memory played him another evil trick. He suddenly recalled those uncovered feet projecting from the edge of the tent and the body's appearance of having been dragged towards the opening. The man shrieking from something by the door when he woke later. The details now beat against his trembling mind with concerted attack. They seemed to gather in those deep spaces of the silent forest about him, where the host of trees stood waiting, listening, watching, to see what he would do. The woods were closing around him. The persistence of true pluck, however, Simpson went forward, following the tracks as best he could, smothering these ugly emotions that sought to weaken his will. He blazed innumerable trees as he went, ever fearful of being unable to find the way back, and calling aloud at intervals of a few seconds the name of the guide. The dull tapping of the axe upon the massive trunks and the unnatural accents of his own voice became at length sounds that he even dreaded to make, dreaded to hear for they drew attention without ceasing to his presence and exact whereabouts, 
and if it were really the case that something was hunting himself down in the same way that he was hunting down another. With a strong effort, he crushed the thought out the instant it rose. It was the beginning, he realized, of a bewilderment utterly diabolical and kind that would speedily destroy him. Although the snow was not continuous, lying merrily in shallow flurries over the more open spaces, he found no difficulty in following the tracks for the first few miles. They went straight as a ruled line, wherever the trees permitted. The stride soon began to increase in length, till it finally assumed proportions that seemed absolutely impossible for any ordinary animal to have made. Like huge flying leaps they became. One of these measured, and though he knew that stretch of 18 feet must be somehow wrong, he was at a complete loss to understand why he found no signs on the snow between the extreme points. But what perplexed him even more, making him feel his vision had gone utterly awry, was that Defago's stride increased in the same manner and finally covered the same incredible distances. It looked as if the great beast had lifted him with it and carried him across these astonishing intervals. Simpson, who was much longer in the limb, found that he could not compass even half this stretch by taking a running jump. And the sight of these huge tracks, running side by side, silent evidence of a dreadful journey in which terror or madness had urged to impossible results, was profoundly moving. It shocked him in the secret depths of his soul. It was the most horrible thing his eyes had ever looked upon. He began to follow them mechanically, absent-mindedly almost, ever peering over his shoulder to see if he too were being followed by something with a gigantic tread. And soon it came about that he no longer quite realized what it was they signified. These impressions left upon the snow by something nameless and untamed, always accompanied by the footmarks of the little French Canadian, his guide, his comrade, the man who had shared his tent a few hours before, chatting, laughing, even singing by his side. Chapter 5 for a man of his years and inexperience, only a canny Scot, perhaps grounded in common sense and established in logic, could have preserved even that measure of balance that this youth somehow or other did manage to preserve through the whole adventure. Otherwise, two things he presently noticed, while forging pluckily ahead, must have sent him headlong back to the comparative safety of his tent instead of only making his hands more tightly upon the rifle stock, while his heart, trained for the wee kirk, sent a wordless prayer winging its way to heaven. Both tracks, he saw, had undergone a change, and this change, so far as it concerned the footsteps of the man, was in some indecipherable manner appalling. It was in the bigger tracks he first noticed this, and for a long time he could not quite believe his eyes. Was it the blown leaves that produced odd effects of light and shade? 
or that the dry snow, drifting like finely ground rice about the edges, cast shadows and highlights? Or was it actually the fact that the great marks had become faintly colored? For round about the deep plunging holes of the animal, there now appeared a mysterious reddish tinge that was more like an effect of light than of anything that dyed the substance of the snow itself. Every mark had it, and had it increasingly. This indistinct fiery tinge that painted a new touch of ghastliness into the picture. But when, wholly unable to explain or to credit it, he turned his attention to the other tracks to discover if they too bore similar witness, he noticed that these had meanwhile undergone a change that was infinitely worse, and charged with far more horrible suggestion. For in the last hundred yards or so, he saw that they had grown gradually into the semblance of the parent tread. Imperceptibly, the change had come about, yet unmistakably. It was hard to see where the change first began. The result, however, was beyond question. Smaller, neater, more cleanly modeled. They formed now an exact and careful duplicate of the larger tracks beside them. The feet had produced them had, therefore, also changed and something in his mind reared up with loathing and with terror as he saw it. Simpson, for the first time, hesitated. Then, ashamed of his alarm and indecision, took a few hurried steps ahead. The next instant stopped dead in his tracks. Immediately in front of him, all signs of the trail ceased. Both tracks came to an abrupt end. On all sides for a hundred yards and more, he searched in vain for the least indication of their continuance. There was nothing. The trees were very thick just there. Big trees, all of them, spruce, cedar, hemlock. There was no underbrush. He stood looking about him, all distraught, bereft of any power of judgment. Then he set to work to search again and again, and yet again, but always with the same result. Nothing. The feet that printed the surface of the snow thus far had now, apparently, left the ground. And it was in that moment of distress and confusion that the whip of terror laid its most nicely calculated lash upon his heart. It dropped with deadly effect upon the sorest spot of all, completely unnerving him. He had been secretly dreading all this time that it would come, and come it did. Far overhead, muted by great height and distance, strangely thinned and wailing, he heard the crying voice of Defago, the guide. The sound dropped upon him out of that still, wintry sky with an effect of dismay and terror unsurpassed. The rifle fell to his feet. He stood motionless an instant, listening as if it were with his whole body, then staggered back against the nearest tree for support, disorganized hopelessly in mind and spirit. To him, 
in that moment. It seemed the most shattering and dislocating experience he had ever known, so that his heart emptied itself of all feeling whatsoever, as by a sudden drought. Oh, oh, my feet of fire, my burning feet of fire, oh, this height and fiery steed ran in far beseeching accents of indescribable appeal this voice of anguish down the sky. Once it called, then silence through all the listening wilderness of trees. And Simpson, scarcely knowing what he did, presently found himself running wildly to and fro, searching, calling, tripping over roots and boulders, flinging himself in a frenzy of undirected pursuit after the caller. Behind the screen of memory and emotion with which experience fails events, he plunged, distracted and half-deranged, picking up false lights like a ship at sea, terror in his eyes and heart and soul. For the panic of the wilderness had called him in that far voice, the power of untamed distance, the enticement of the desolation that destroys. He knew in that moment all the pains of someone helplessly and irretrievably lost, suffering the lust and travail of a soul in the final loneliness. A vision of Defago, eternally hunted, driven and pursued across the skyey vastness of those ancient forests, fled like a flame across the dark ruin of his thoughts. It seemed ages before he could find anything in the chaos of his disorganized sensations to which he could anchor himself steady for a moment and think. The cry was not repeated. His own hoarse calling brought no response. The inscrutable forces of the wild had summoned their victim beyond recall and held him fast. Yet he searched and called, it seems, for hours afterwards. For it was late in the afternoon when at length he decided to abandon a useless pursuit and return to his camp on the shores of Fifty Island Water. Even then he went with reluctance, that crying voice still echoing in his ears. With difficulty he found his rifle in the homeward trail, the concentration necessary to follow the badly blazed trees, an abiding hunger that gnawed, helped to keep his mind steady. Otherwise, he admits, the temporary aberration he had suffered might have been prolonged to the point of positive disaster. Gradually, the ballast shifted back again, and he regained something that approached his normal equilibrium. But for all that, the journey through the gathering dusk was miserably haunted. He heard innumerable following footsteps, voices that laughed and whispered, and saw figures crouching behind trees and boulders, making signs to one another for a concerted attack the moment he had passed. The creeping murmur of the wind made him start and listen. He went stealthily, trying to hide where possible and making as little sound as he could. The shadows of the woods, hitherto protective or covering merrily, had now become menacing, challenging, 
and the pageantry in his frightened mind masked a host of possibilities that were all the more ominous for being obscure. A nameless doom lurked ill-concealed behind every detail of what had happened. It was really admirable how he emerged victor in the end. Men of riper powers and experience might have come through the ordeal with less success. He had himself tolerably well in hand, all things considered, and his plan of action proves it. Sleep being absolutely out of the question, and traveling an unknown trail in the darkness equally impractical, he sat up the whole of that night, rifle in hand, before a fire he never for a single moment allowed to die down. The severity of the haunted vigil marked his soul for life, but it was successfully accomplished, and with the very first signs of dawn, he set forth upon the long return journey to the home camp to get help. As before, he left a written note to explain his absence and to indicate where he had left a plentiful cache of food and matches, though he had no expectation that any human hands would find them. How Simpson found his way alone by the lake and forest might well make a story in itself, for to hear him tell it is to know the passionate loneliness of a soul that a man can feel when the wilderness holds him in the hollow of its hand and laughs. It is also to admire his indomitable pluck. He claims no skill, declaring that he followed the almost invisible trail mechanically and without thinking. And this, doubtless, is the truth. He relied upon the guiding of his unconscious mind, which is instinct. Perhaps, too, some sense of orientation, known to animals and primitive men, may have helped as well. For through all that tangled region, he succeeded in reaching the exact spot where DeFago had hidden the canoe nearly three days before with the remark, Strike due west across the lake and to the sun to find the camp. There was not much sun left to guide him, but he used his compass to the best of his ability, embarking in the frail craft for the last 12 miles of his journey with a sensation of immense relief that the forest was at last behind him. And fortunately, the water was calm. He took his line across the center of the lake instead of coasting round the shores for another 20 miles. Fortunately, too, the other hunters were back. The light of their fires furnished a steering point without which he might have searched all night long for the actual position of the camp. It was close upon midnight all the same when his canoe grated on the sandy cove, and Hank, Punk, and his uncle, disturbed in their sleep by his cries, ran quickly down and helped a very exhausted and broken specimen of Scotch humanity over the rocks toward a dying fire. Who likes dark stories? People who have experienced a touch of the dark side. People who are a little wiser to the world. People who like their bones chilled and their spines tingled. People like you and me. 
It's hard to find a story these days that write on the dark side with a touch of whimsy, humor, and heart. Mav Sky spreads her dark wings and solves this problem for you. Head on over to Amazon and type Mav Sky's name into the search engine. M-A-V-S-K-Y-E. At Amazon, you'll find her Tales to Chill Your Bones series, Girl Clown Hatchet series, Supergirl series, her cult classic novel, Wanted Single Rails, and of course, her brand new release, Cold Hangs the Midnight. Choose your dark flavor and head on over to Amazon today.